Thanks for listening to the Jazz Joel Show podcast. Today on the pod, rate freeze. The NDP government announces a two-year freeze for basic insurance. Can ICBC afford it? Plus, buy high, sell low. We look at the devastating impact of Bank of Canada rate hikes on Canadian families. And fighting back. The construction industry offers a $100,000 reward for information on the violent coastal gas link attack. And a very jolly Christmas. Are you ready for the Vancouver Santa pub crawl? That's all next on the Jazz Joel Show podcast. Since March, the Bank of Canada has hiked its key interest rates seven consecutive times in an effort to bring inflation down and slow the economy. Now, the central bank did signal last week, you might all remember this, that it might be ready to pause its aggressive rate hike cycle, but Canadians should not expect rates to start going back down anytime soon. Now, the very thing that's cooling the housing market, rising interest rates, is an affordability is in an affordability tug of war, if you think about it, with falling house prices. So far, higher rates are winning. Higher rates have homeowners paying significantly more in interest, if you think about it. The four percentage point increase means that a household is paying over $24,000 more in interest in a year based on our national average home price of $756,000. Now, you're probably going, well, that's pretty low for Vancouver. That that doesn't uh, impact us here. Well, the higher price markets like Vancouver, homeowners will be paying an extra $37,000 if you think about uh, the higher interest rates. The affordability challenges, of course, are having a huge impact on consumers and the real estate industry. Tiff Macklin, the Bank of Canada governor, spoke on some of those issues earlier today. We're trying to balance the risks of over and under tightening monetary policy. If we raise rates too much, we could drive the economy into an unnecessarily painful recession and undershoot the inflation target. If we don't raise them enough, inflation will remain elevated and households and businesses will come to expect persistently high inflation. Now, if you're a homeowner in Vancouver or Toronto or major cities, uh, you would probably say, look, I got a very variable rate mortgage. I'm already paying too much. Well, recently, and by that I mean this weekend, homeowners who, uh, who purchased in a new development uh, protested uh, in Toronto as they bought at the market's peak and now have been seeing those property assessments fall by hundred dollars to $500,000. Uh, they're in desperate st- uh, straits. Now, some would argue, look, uh, They're flippers, speculators, and I wouldn't disagree with you. Some of them are flippers or speculators, but some of them are also everyday people who have bought a home and now uh, the assessment is significantly lower than what they had purchased or said they would purchase the home at. So whether it's consumers dealing with high rates and realtors who are struggling with low sales, it's a bloodbath out there. Joining me now is Ron Butler. He is a mortgage broker with Butler Insurance. Ron, thank you for joining us today. Great to be here. Thanks for having me. Uh, it's a challenging time uh, for the real estate industry uh, and the broadening house, broad, broader housing market here in, in Canada. What are you seeing across this country? Seeing a variety of things, none of them good. We see pressure on people in many different ways in terms of their mortgage rates going up and also in terms of property values falling. I mean, this is a particular concern when people have bought pre-construction homes, pre-construction homes, townhouses, condos, semis, um, all kinds of different housing product that was purchased at a time where house prices were higher than today, but now is soon coming the time when these people must close. And when those properties are appraised, they're being appraised at a lower value than the people have actually paid for them. Mm-hmm. 
can we expect and are you already seeing uh, people walking away from these deals or just having difficulty getting any financing? There's going to be severe difficulties with some of them. I mean, we had a case just over the weekend, protesters in a greater Toronto suburb uh, saying that they have a difference in value versus what the houses are appraising for and the townhouses and the semis are appraising for of as much as half a million dollars versus the contract they signed to buy the properties. Mm-hmm. So the property at the time was purchased for $1.8 million, was built, uh, is nearing completion, and the best possible appraised value for that property is now something like $1.3 million. Um, where will they find the extra half a million dollars unless the builder gives them some sort of relief? Um, there are those who hear what you've said to say, and they'll say, well, a lot of these people... Uh, maybe property flippers, Um, they should have known the interest rates were so low that inevitably they're going to go up. Uh, What would you say to that argument? I'd say it's valid, but not in all cases. We can't really have a great deal of sympathy for people who are doing their uh, fifth or sixth or seventh property purchase and flip at a higher value. I mean, those people are in the speculation business and whatever happens, happens. I mean, that's, that's the way it works in our society. But we can have a lot of compassion for people who just want to sell their condo because their family is growing and buy a home, such as a townhouse or a detached home, just want a place for their families to live. They planned on selling their condo, moving to the larger property, and now that condo has dropped in value and the, they just don't have any way to pull the transaction off. I think we should have a degree of compassion for those people. I'm not recommending any sort of government bailout, but I think it's reasonable to have some compassion for people who are stuck in this very difficult financial situation. Yeah, and we've had one or two protests like that here in the Vancouver area, and people have asked the government to step in. But like you, I'm not sure what government could do Uh, in those situations. I don't think many people feel sorry for those who speculate, as you say, but for those everyday folks who were perhaps moving into a bigger place because their families are expanding, your heart does go go out to them. Um, Let's change just to tack a little bit. I'm I'm curious, where do you think, here in Vancouver certainly, you know, real estate and development play a significant role in our economy from not just, um, you know, the building of homes, uh, you have the renovation market, you have people selling furniture, it's all interconnected. But with sales dropping significantly, prices have fallen as well, but sales especially, what do you think is happening to the real estate market itself, the, 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 the real estate agent? I mean, it's got to be tough out there right now. There's no question that there's going to be a contraction in employment in all of those areas you just mentioned. Now, not instantly and not next month and maybe not even the month after that. But as these rates stay high and unit sales of properties stay way low, some cases as much as 50% less than last year, in some cases these are 14-year lows we're seeing in terms of numbers of houses sold. Well, if that continues, then you're you're right. There's going to be less real estate agents, less mortgage brokers, less renovators, uh, and less furniture sold. 
I mean, it is a cascade effect that will definitely take place, and eventually it will do some harm to the economy. It, are, are real estate agents selling at all right now? Like, it's, How difficult is it? I mean, you deal with these folks, you, you're in the mortgage business, but are they able to sell anything right now? Sure. Uh, 50% still means there's a few thousand transactions uh, in you know, GTA or in the lower mainland. There's still transactions occurring because the truth is that there's just a natural need for some things. Some people have passed away, some marriages have broken down, some people have job transfers, and the property needs a, needs the transaction to happen, needs to be sold, needs to be purchased. That said, when you see contractions in unit volumes drop to this level, there's just the need for a lot less people to handle those transactions. Don't get me wrong, extremely established, very busy real estate agents will just experience a slowdown. But for some people who are not particularly big-time real estate agents or big-time mortgage brokers um, previously years, some of those people might have sold eight houses in a year, six houses in a year. Some of those folks will go to zero, and you can't, you know, that you can't stay. I mean, that's a form of unemployment when there's zero transactions going on in, for you as a real estate agent. You, can't, you just can't stay. You're effectively unemployed. When do you think this all levels out? Are we still still 18 months away, two years from now, where things may, we may see some light at the end of the tunnel? It's an unpredictable environment. If the Bank of Canada maintains these high rates, and they might for the course of all of next year, the math of mortgages is such that there can't be a lot of transactions. So if that does occur, then we can expect that Nothing good will happen in 2023 in the real estate world. Well, Ron, it's, uh, it's, it's a real tough market, and I really want to talk to you. I really appreciate uh, your blunt talk uh, and honest talk, and I've always appreciated reading your, your, your commentary on, on Twitter and, and, and many other outlets as well. Thank you so much for your time, and if we don't speak, Merry Christmas to you. All the best to you, and thanks for having me. Well, our next guest has reported extensively on Chinese government interference in Canadian life. He has written about China targeting our federal election, which included funding a clandestine network of at least 11 federal candidates during the 2019 election. He has written about illegal Chinese police stations operating in our country, as well as a myriad of stories on individuals and organizations that have facilitated China's foreign interference activities here in Canada. Well, over the weekend, he wrote about uh, the RCMP's national security officers conducting interviews at Richmond's Wenzhou Friendship Society and in the surrounding neighborhood. At least a half a dozen officers in that story canvassed the area, uh, as we were reading. So why were those officers there? What could they be concerned about? Joining me now is Sam Cooper, Global News National Investigative Journalist. Sam, thank you for joining us today. Thanks for having me, Jazz. Uh, your thoughts, first of all, and it's, I know it's hard to, to be uh, absolutely black and white about this stuff. Your thoughts on why those officers were there? Well, uh, we know through sources that are close to this uh, national security investigation that's active both in Toronto and Vancouver, that they, over the past weeks, have been involved in covert uh, investigation activities. They're looking at so-called community leaders that uh, my reporting has suggested are involved in uh, Beijing's United Front Networks in Canada. And what they did, uh, what I gather from uh, the, the weekend's activities, is they went from overt to covert operations. They very clearly advertised their presence 
in that neighborhood. And Jazz, what I think they're doing is there, there's been a big shift in Ottawa. Uh, obviously, uh, these investigations have been given weight. And uh, the RCMP is saying to uh, what they believe are victims being threatened, harassed, pressured illegally by Chinese police operating out of such stations. These, these are the allegations, not, no charges yet. They want to tell Chinese, Canadian, and, and all diaspora community members, we want to hear from you. If you're a victim, don't be afraid. Come and talk to us. And they're also advertising to the alleged suspects, who, Jazz, I, I'm aware, can be powerful business people. They're saying, we, uh, if you thought we weren't investigating this, and you may have got that impression over the years, we are definitely actively on this now. Mm -hmm. Uh, For our audience, these groups, uh, community groups here in uh, Vancouver, across the country, uh, how do they operate? I mean, are they charity organizations, in this case, a friendship society? What is sort of their front and and how do they work? Well, uh, the history here, according to, you know, my intelligence and police sources, is a lot of these societies and others have written about this started very naturally as grassroots groups where uh, immigrants uh, from other countries, especially China, uh, mostly mainland China, there are Hong Kong and, and, and Taiwanese associations, want to get together because, look, China is such a massive country that hometowns are very important. So uh, me- most of these were very, you know, uh, truly beneficial to Canada. But what has happened over the past 10, 20 years uh, is the Chinese consulates, intelligence officials within the consulates in Vancouver, Toronto, Montreal, allegedly have taken over. And I'll use a strong word, but this is what my intelligence sources say. They take over and weaponize these associations. They they control them through consulate officials and they... Uh, as we've reported on this, they use what's called overseas affairs officials within the consulates to spy on uh, diaspora communities, gather intelligence from, and to do all kinds of uh, covert operations in Canada. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, recently, the government has, as, as you have said, um, a bit, been a bit more open in regards to China's role here, their opposition to them, their concern. Uh, is it a little, is it too late? I mean, it's been going on for so long that we've tiptoed around this. Do you worry that it's just been too late in regards to even just what you've written about? Could you imagine if we had been doing that five years ago or even 10 years ago? Well, uh, that's the right question. I'm, I'm certainly looking into those questions. And Jazz, I believe that, uh, you know, it's clear from my reporting over the past month that people uh, very concerned for Canada's future have provided me with sensitive intelligence, mm-hmm. leaked it. Let's just use the real world word. Mm-hmm. They've leaked it because they believe uh, this government, not only this government, but most recently, this government has not responded to growing threats that this government was warned about from people in Canadian intelligence and police. Mm-hmm. Um, I was told uh, uh, not to uh, er, well, earlier this year, MPs met with CSIS um, uh, quietly uh, just to be informed of some of the concerns. But the concern, what I've heard from many officials here, and this is here in Vancouver, was that uh, the information too often, the advice they get is too generic, too broad, that there aren't specific individuals or organizations uh, that they mention that in, uh, elected officials should stay away from. 
is perhaps that, would that be a practical response to some of this and say, look, if this particular group X, Y, and Z you should stay away from because we think they've been co-opted, wouldn't that be better and much more sort of practical advice and sort of generically talking about here's the broad challenges, but they don't mention any individuals, they don't mention any groups, that even elected officials wouldn't know who they're actually uh, talking to uh, who, or, who, who are the, or what groups are, what groups are inviting them to their functions? I've heard various takes on this issue, and uh, I'll, I'll start with the first take that I've heard. And mm-hmm. Look, my first story, my, my sort of expose, early November, we had a former Canadian intelligence official saying, look, CSIS and the RCP lack laws to deal with modern interference, which, which is very sophisticated. It's not the old days with the KGB guy who's an official agent. Uh, CSIS can learn that. This new networks, they use a very a, a wide range of actors. So CSIS, in the words of this official, is just telling politicians, hey, be careful out there. But there's no muscle, there's no enforcement behind that information. So I think that would fit very well with what you're hearing from your political networks, Jazz, uh, that a lot of officials say, look, CSIS will, in some cases, is, is wasting our time. Uh, they, they're not giving us specifics. But there's a, the key here is that CSIS is bound by national secrets laws. Uh, they can't tell uh, much detail to subnational governments. Uh, you mentioned MPs. Uh, even MPs need security clearances to hear some very concerning information. And look, when we're talking about sensitive investigations, this could be members of uh, the MPs' party. You can see how quick it, it, it can get sensitive and messy. So I do think there's a lot to be said that it's a lot of information. It's pretty general. Hey, be careful about China, you know, other countries, Russia, Iran, there are others. Mm-hmm. But what we do know is CSIS is very clearly saying to a lot of politicians, we have a serious threat here. We can't tell you too much, but uh, you need to be worried. Mm-hmm. Sam, thank you so much for your time, my friend. I really appreciate it. Thanks, Sas. BC's public auto insurer is asking to freeze basic insurance rates for the next two years. ICBC uh, has requested no increases over that period through the uh, BC Utilities Commission. Now, the announcement comes as ICBC has reported $117 million in net income for the first half of 2022-2023 fiscal year, uh, alongside, of course, lower investment income and a significant decline in value of the uh, uh, the insurance equity investment um, uh, by the fall. Now, ICBC President Nicholas Jimenez told a news conference that while the corporation's investment portfolio has seen recent declines, the core of the business is doing well and the rates reflect anticipated future performance. Take a listen. Uh, we are projecting uh, a future that's not rosy, that accounts for the fact that there's a lot of volatility, uh, but we are very prudent, very cautious. Uh, we've always has been, we always have been, uh, and this filing will lay bare uh, essentially that conservatism and that caution, uh, which is, again, allowing us to do what we're doing uh, around rates for the next two years. That was ICBC President Nicholas Jimenez. Now joining me now to discuss the rate freeze is Mike Farnworth, the Solicitor General, Minister of Public Safety, and also Minister responsible for ICBC. Minister, thank you for joining us. My pleasure. Uh, Minister, uh, the government has a significant surplus, so I know the government can afford this, uh, but do you think ICBC can afford this rate freeze? Uh, absolutely, uh, they can. Uh, so in terms of the, the filing that's gone forward, mm-hmm. uh, ICBC goes to the Utilities Commission and has gone forward asking for a two-year uh, rate freeze. Uh, and it's done on the basis of, 
of actuarial uh, examination mm-hmm. uh, of the costs uh, and the pressures that ICBC is facing. So it's not done, you know, by 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 politicians. It's not done. Uh, on the basis of picking something out of the air. It's done on the basis of actuarial evidence, and that evidence is taken before the, uh, the Utilities Commission, and then they, they, they make their decision based on that based on that evidence, and it's there uh, uh, to be seen. Now, ICBC is a standalone entity, uh, it obviously owned by the public, uh, but it's, insur- it's, um, its uh, finances uh, stay within that, uh, that corporate body. The $5 billion, of course, is separate from that, but will that play any role in regards to subsidizing ICBC? I just want to clear that, clarify it for, yeah, that, for our no, audience. No, there is no cross-subsidization uh, from that $5 billion uh, projected surplus uh, to, uh, to, to, to ICBC. Uh, in regards to ICBC itself, uh, obviously uh, it, it does have $117 million in net income, but some challenges, uh, like a lot of portfolios out there, investment for portfolios, uh, um, uh, are not doing so well. Do you see any significant changes coming to ICBC? I know significant changes have have come to ICBC in the past over the last uh, three or four years. Do you expect uh, any other restructuring of the insurer moving forward in a significant way? I think there's a number of areas. Um, obviously, we've had some major restructuring in terms of moving to the uh, enhanced care, no-fault uh, system of insurance, which has delivered lower premiums uh, to uh, to the motor to motorists in British Columbia. But we also want to make sure that we're all constantly improving the customer service uh, experience with ICBC. Uh, this is still, you know, very much in many ways transitional as people get used to the, the new system. Uh, in my mandate letter. Uh, that was given to me by the Premier uh, and being given responsible for ICBC is to look at ways to improve things for pedestrians and cyclists, for example, and we will be looking at how we do that. Uh, but the key focus, I think, is ensuring that, that, that people are treated fairly by ICBC, uh, looking at how we can improve, uh, always look to, it to, to improve things. Uh, but the, the key major uh, changes uh, have already taken place. Uh, in regards to the uh, freeze to basic insurance rates, um, why do we think ICBC can afford this? Like, you're not going to hear a, a private sector insurer say this that we're going to freeze rates for two years or three years, and we haven't uh, rates have not gone up over five years. Why should we expect a public insurer to that? If there is a surplus, it should keep the surplus for days uh, and times when things may not be going so well. So this is a combination of two things. One, uh, in terms of the premiums that they bring in uh, and projecting forward, uh, they are able to go to the Utilities Commission, um, and and that's why we're asking for a two-year freeze to say we believe that we can uh, keep rates stable. Here's the actuarial basis on which we want to do it. At the same time, ICBC is being prudent uh, and and conservative in its approach and ensuring that it also maintains those capital reserves, uh, which are required uh, as an insurance company that it has to have. Uh, and so it's a combination of, 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 of ensuring we've got the capital reserves over the long term and looking at how the, the, uh, the, the things are performing right now, the corporation is performing right now, and projecting that out as well in terms of, you know what, over the next two years, uh, based on the actuarial advice we've got, 
we can do a a 0% rate freeze, and that's what we're asking the Utilities Commission for. Mm -hmm. Now, ICBC has been restructured significantly uh, to a a no-fault system. Others have said, look, there's other systems in this country, public public insurers, that while the vast majority of people sign up for a no-fault system, there is an opportunity uh, for some, if they wish to pay more, to to, uh, sign up for a system similar to the old ICBC, where you would be able to hire a lawyer and to be able to sue. I think it's Saskatchewan that has uh, similar uh, offerings where you can have the no-fault system or the at-fault system. Is there any conversation about bringing that opportunity, or at the very least that, that, um, uh, that uh, you know, for, for a consumer, that choice uh, as well? Uh, no. Uh, we had a look at that uh, when we were developing the, the enhanced care system here in British Columbia. Mm-hmm. Uh, we looked at Saskatchewan and Manitoba and Quebec. And the reality in the case of Saskatchewan is, is, is very, very few people take advantage or take that, uh, the, the old system, if you like. Um, the sheer cost, the differential in cost is really prohibitive. And, and so we've made the, we made the decision to put in place the, the enhanced care system that we have right now. Minister, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. My pleasure. Thanks very much. All right. That's Mike Farnworth, the Solicitor General, Minister of Public Safety, of course, and Minister responsible for ICBC. Canadian pop star Celine Dion announced on Instagram recently the postponement of her upcoming tour due to a diagnosis of stiff person syndrome, a rare neurological disease that affects about one in a million people. Now, I've got to admit, I didn't know anything about stiff person syndrome or SPS uh, before that announcement. Um, Earlier this year, Dion uh, cancelled several shows on her North American tour and for her Las Vegas residency, she was citing uh, health concerns. Now, eight of her shows scheduled for summer 2023 will be cancelled. Here is uh, Celine Dion from her announcement last week. Recently, have been diagnosed with a very rare neurological disorder called the stiff person syndrome, which affects something like one in a million people. While we're still learning about this rare condition, we now know this is what's been causing all of the spasms that I've been having. Unfortunately, these spasms affect every aspect of my daily life, sometimes causing difficulties when I walk and not allowing me to use my vocal cords to sing the way I'm used to. That was Celine Dion um, making the announcement uh, that she was diagnosed with SPS uh, last week. So what is SPS? Joining me now to discuss um, the uh, condition uh, is Dr. Katie Beaton, neurologist at St. Paul's Hospital and clinical assistant professor at UBC. Dr. Beaton, thank you for joining us today. No problem. Nice to be here. Uh, What causes SPS? So that's a very good question. We still don't have all the answers to that. Uh, Stiff person syndrome, uh, we think, is uh, caused by an autoimmune attack on parts of the body um, inside the central nervous system. So our nervous system is made up of uh, a close balance between things that excite it and things that stop that excitement. And in the context of stiff person syndrome, you've had a decrease in the things that stop the excitement. And so there's an overactivity of the muscle system that causes stiffness and spasms. So it, it will impact sort of every aspect of your daily life, one assumes, with that diagnosis. 
It sure does because the stiffness and the spasms primarily affect the biggest muscles. So the big muscles within the stomach and the chest as well as the back and then in the, in the top parts of the legs as well. So when those muscles are feeling stiff, it makes ambulation extremely difficult. And then the spasms on top of that are extremely unpredictable. And so if a spasm occurs during walking, then that can cause a fall. Or um, if it occurs in the large muscles of the back, it can cause significant pain um, and uh, other disruptions to your daily life. The diagnosis, diagnosis itself is not fatal. That's correct. It is, it, it is not a fatal diagnosis, but it is a chronic diagnosis, so we don't have a cure for it. Uh, is there a difference in regards to how it affects men and women, uh, or is, is one gender impacted more than the other? So it's much more common, um, at least three times more common in women, um, but in those that have the disease, they, they manifest similar symptoms. Uh, and is it genetic? Uh, so... Probably not, <laughs> although there's a bit of a caveat to that. Um, autoimmune diseases, um, we don't have a specific genetic mutation that is associated with a lot of them, um, but uh, they do tend to run in families. So it may not even always be the same autoimmune disease, uh, but some families we see much higher um, incidence of autoimmune diseases of various kinds. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, if somebody feels there's something wrong or they're going through something, uh, how would SPS be diagnosed? So stiff person syndrome is diagnosed typically by a neurologist. Um, It can often be quite a delay in diagnosis because the symptoms at the beginning of muscle spasms and muscle cramping or stiffness are fairly nonspecific. Um, But uh, with the progressive difficulties with walking um, and, and significant pain, often these patients will be referred to a neurologist. And the diagnosis will be made based on their clinical symptoms as well as performing specialized electrical testing where we can test how the nerves and muscles are talking to each other, called electromyogram or EMG. Uh, in regards to treatment itself, what, what kind of treatments would be available? So the first part of treatment is trying to address the spasms and, um, and muscle stiffness. And we do with that with medications that help to increase that inhibition again that's out of balance. Um, so with medications like benzodiazepines or clonazepam um, that, that help to increase or so to decrease that muscle spasm. Um, and then with some medications that are also used for other disorders like seizures, which are an overactivity of the nervous system in a different way, um, so medications like pregabalin, which can help to decrease that overexcitement. Now that's managing the symptoms, and then the sort of second part of that is trying to address the autoimmune disruption that's occurring, so the the fact that the immune system is attacking the body. And we um, will sometimes use medications like intravenous immunoglobulins, which are taking immunoglobulins from health, so the antibodies from healthy donors' um, blood Mm -hmm. and giving that to somebody with an autoimmune disease to decrease the activity of their immune system so that we're, we're calming things down that way. Is it almost like, a, and a, probably for a lack of a better term, like a reset for the body that you have to do or try to do? With the immunoglobulins, you mean? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so it's, it's distracting your immune system from wreaking havoc by giving a healthy immune system components to, to you. Uh, I hadn't heard of something like this before. I mean, this is, I mean, in many cases, Celine Dion coming out and discussing the challenges before her. 
raises awareness of of um, SPS more than ever before, I guess, because I had never heard of it before. And most people wouldn't have. This is something that's going to affect maybe one or two per million people. So it's a very rare disorder, um, which uh, makes it difficult to diagnose because not only the general public, but many um, primary care physicians have also never heard of this. Hmm. And the impact on one's life, uh, I mean, it is quite significant, isn't it, in regards to just carrying on with the quality of life or going on with what one would say is a sort of a normal life which is very difficult. Absolutely. Not only does it affect your ability to walk and cause unexpected pain or falls, the um, the pain associated with the stiffness and spasms is really severe. And so these people's quality of life is being affected not only by dealing with massive amounts of pain and difficulties with mobility, um, but it can also affect the limbs as well, making limb use more difficult and really does affect every part of of their lives. Well, this is incredibly uh, fascinating, and like I said, I hadn't heard of it before, but I'm glad there's people like yourself looking into it and and working on it, and uh, hopefully one day we'll have uh, a cure as well. Uh, Dr. Beaton, thank you so much for your time today. I really appreciate it. It's been nice talking to you. Well, a $100,000 reward has been posted for information about masked uh, axe-wielding assailants responsible for a violent attack on a remote coastal gas link worksite in northwestern BC last February. Now, Coastal Gas Link um, is building a 670-kilometer pipeline that will connect uh, the LNG Canada liquefied natural gas plant being built in Kitimat with the gas fields. Uh, in northeastern BC around the Fort St. John area. Now, as of August, the project is about 70% completed. Now, dozens of RCMP officers assigned to the case have poured over video footage and still photos and conducted interviews uh, with witnesses and persons of interest, but no arrests have been made. About 20 masked individuals stormed the sites, attacking uh, nine security guards and construction workers. In one case, a worker was trapped inside a truck and had his window smashed out by an axe. Now, heavy equipment was commandeered to damage other on-site equipment and trailers. The assailants also disabled lights and video surveillance and used a school bus down trees, uh, tar-covered stumps and debris set on fire to block access to in and out of sight. So it was very much a uh, well-organized attack. The attack occurred just after midnight on February 17th when a group of vandals, uh, some which were carrying axes, hit up the Coastal Gas Link work site. Now, a $100,000 reward is funded by the Independent Contractors and Businesses Association. Uh, today, uh, law enforcement, uh, ICBA, and uh, Linda Annis, who's the Executive Director of Metro Vancouver's Crime Stoppers, uh, spoke on this issue. Here's Ms. Annis talking about the um, $100,000 reward. It's reasonable to assume anyone with information about this crime might fear for retaliation if they told anyone. But please be assured it's safe to call us at Crime Stoppers. We guarantee your anonymity and we will never collect any personal information. We just need the information that leads to the arrests. Now, as I said, the $100,000 reward uh, is funded by the Independent Contractors and Businesses Association. Their president and CEO, Chris Gardner, joins us now. Chris, thank you for speaking to us today. It's great to be on your show this afternoon, Jess. So, Chris, why is it important for the Independent Contractors and Businesses Association, the ICBA, uh, to fund this reward? 
Well, if you think of what happened this morning in every day in British Columbia, about 250,000 men and women wake up and go to a construction job site uh, to help build our province. And the work they do accounts for about 10% of our economy. And the first thing that everybody who is in any way, shape, or form affiliated with construction thinks about is safety on the job site. And when you listen to Superintendent Elliott, who recounted um, at our announcement this morning uh, about what happened in February on the uh, Coastal Gasoline Pipeline work site, work site, there were 20 or more people um, who um, committed a planned, premeditated, coordinated attack with a high degree of precision. Access roads were blocked with vehicles, there were fire set, there were booby traps, lights and video cameras were disabled. It was shockingly violent. People were threatened, lives were put at risk, and $20 million worth of equipment was destroyed. So for us to offer the $100,000 uh, reward, we're basically saying we're standing with those workers, we're supporting the efforts of the RCMP to bring this investigation to a close, and we're working with crime stoppers to basically say this cannot stand. And um, so the $100,000 reward is for information leading to the arrest and charge of the individuals who created these outrageous acts of violence. Mm -hmm. uh, are you surprised something like this actually happened in Canada? Well, you know, it, you know, if you think of, if you read the accounts from the workers and the crews who were on site that night, um, there is real fear in their voices. Um, their lives were at risk. They were threatened with weapons and axes and all kinds of uh, uh, all kinds of threats, which uh, it would be horrifying for anyone to go to go through. So, for anyone going to uh, any workplace in this country, um, no one should have to go there worried about thugs and criminals walking through the door, walking on the site, and threatening your life and uh, with with violence that most people never see. Uh, at any point in their lives. So um, we think it's important to um, to do what we can, and hopefully this reward will uh, prompt someone to come forward, give those those pieces of information that are vital so that the RCMP can close the loop on the investigation and make the arrests and lay the charges that are required to bring some accountability and send a very strong message to others that this type of violence is not acceptable. Now, this pipeline is uh, approved by the provincial and federal government. It went through extensive approval processes that it needs to go through. It has the uh, support of elected First Nations communities right along that pipeline route. It goes all the way from northeastern BC, across BC, and will eventually end up in Kitimat, where this giant LNG plant um, will chill and cool uh, the LNG or natural gas, and where it will be then shipped off uh, to Asia. Um, for projects like this to to, to get approval, it usually takes four or five years of extensive consultations, testing, um, I mean, significant amount of dollars, I've referred to up to a billion dollars, has to be spent for an LNG project, including a pipeline, to get to a point where a corporate board will say yes or no, we're going to go forward with this. In this case, it's Shell and, and um, other nations that are involved in the development of this project. It has been approved by a board which said we will spend the $36 billion in Canada. You have all the correct um, approvals that are required. Our government, uh, environmental uh, assessment's been done. Yet here we are with acts of violence. What message do you think this sends to the global community that suppose a G7 nation, you have acts of vandalism like this, and probably terrorism is probably a better way to explain it, yet these companies have all followed the rules, yet they're still having to go through this. 
You know, it's a, it's a good point. Um, you know, Canada ranks, according to the World Bank, number 64 in the world in the length of time it takes to approve a, a construction or infrastructure project. So no one can accuse Canada of rushing into these projects. Um, there's more oversight and transparency around how we build infrastructure and energy projects in Canada than any other country. We should actually be proud of the record we have to build projects sustainably, and we should be proud of the highly skilled and trained workers who are working on this nation-building project. It is the largest private sector investment in any project ever in the history of Canada. And this should be an example uh, of Canadian exceptionalism and what we can do to do our part to help a transition to cleaner burning fuels. And, uh, you know, if you look what's happening, you know, in Europe right now because of Russia's invasion of Ukraine and the disruption that's had on energy supply chains, um, and the challenges that, Euro that Europeans are going to have this winter. And if it's very cold, cold kills. And um, we're blessed with an abundance of, of energy, and we should be focused on getting that to market and so that we can help countries like uh, a transition, countries in Asia that are looking to move off of coal to cleaner burning LNG and ultimately to reliable uh, alternate sources of, of clean energy. But do acts like this and, and this sort of um, constant battle that we've had between uh, the private sector, uh, activists, government moving slowly, uh, is the, is, has the reputation of Canada not been set in already? And what I mean by that is we've got this large-scale, pri largest private sector investment in the history of this country, $36 billion. We have another LNG plant near Squamish that's moving forward, but that's $1.5 roughly. That's like one shipment a week compared to one shipment a day in regards to the bigger project up north. But reality, those are two LNG projects, maybe 1.2 if, you if, if you're going to be accurate. Now, you compare that to the United States, they're way ahead of the game. Australia started before us way ahead of the game. Haven't we already missed the proverbial LNG boat uh, when it comes to um, uh, building a, an LNG industry here? Well, I think, you know, we had the, the, uh, the Chancellor of Germany visit Canada a few months ago um, and met with the Prime Minister and, and asked about um, securing uh, LNG from Canada um, over the longer term. And unfortunately, the response to the Prime Minister was, well, there's not a business case. And I think that's, uh, that that's, the market is saying otherwise. We have tremendous opportunities. Um, to your point on the U.S., back in um, you know, a few years ago, neither Canada nor the U.S. were exporting LNG. Fast forward um, about 10 years, and the U.S. is now one of the largest exporters of LNG in the world, and we, we only have two plants that are under construction. Um, so we've been slow. We have missed opportunities. Uh, I'm not sure that I would say it's too late to capitalize on, on some investment, but we've got to take a different approach. Investment has left Canada. More investment has left Canada and come into Canada every single year since 2014. And so we've got to change the, the, um, the way that investors look at Canada. They should be looking at Canada as a land of opportunity where you can get projects to yes in a reasonable amount of time, where they're built according to uh, robust environmental standards, um, but that, you, that there are opportunities here. And right now we don't have that reputation. We tend to scare investment 
dollars away. Uh, we don't do things to attract it. And when you compare, because investors are looking at Canada in the context of every other country in the world in which to invest. If we're ranked number 64 in the world, the length of time it takes to approve an investment, that means 63 countries are doing a better job and getting to yes faster and more effectively, and investors are responding. We've got to change the narrative. We've got to adopt a different approach in this country. Mm-hmm. Uh, Chris, thank you so much for your time today. Really appreciate it. Great. Thank you, Jess. SantaCon is back in Vancouver for 2022, and it's happening December 17th when folks uh, in red and white cloaks take to the streets. The annual event is essentially a pub crawl for those who want to dress up like uh, Chris Kringle. This year it'll be a start. It'll start with the photos and Xmas debauchery at the Art Gallery downtown at noon. Joining us now is Benjamin Houston, the event's organizer. Benjamin, thank you for joining us today. Oh, it's good to be here. Thanks for having me. So walk me through this. How does SantaCon work? SantaCon, well, it doesn't, like I say, it actually works or it doesn't work. <laughs> um, it, it, it is fairly unorganized. We're, we're kind of a non-political, non-violent, non-controversial day. Um, just some fun-loving people trying to spread a little cheer amongst the, the community and um, um, show a little joy during these uh weary months in Vancouver. <laughs> so, uh, correct me if I'm wrong here, so folks who uh, uh, are, are asked to dress like Santa Claus and you all congregate uh, at the art we gallery. We will be going to the art gallery this year, that's correct. Um, usually we go and sing um, some naughty Christmas carols and hand out um, some goodies to kids. And just to be clear, we're very kind to kids. <laughs> and uh, we also hand out some goodies to um, the, the needy in the neighborhood, like socks and toques and gloves and stuff like that as well, mm-hmm. and sing Christmas carols. And just uh, show, show a little love in the, within the community. And then we uh, move on for a little um, um, festivities afterwards. Wow. And so these Santas, after singing Christmas carols, uh, helping out their fellow Vancouverites, then do what I think could be accurately described as a pub crawl. That's uh, you, you call it pub crawl, most certainly. <laughs> we have a very good reputation, very good reputation with the uh, businesses downtown. And so, where, where what neighborhoods will you be going through this year? Uh, well, this year we'll be starting off at the Ivanhoe, uh, which is by Science World, and then uh, working our way uh, to, towards Gastown. Um, stopping off at uh, various locations and uh, ending our, actually ending our evening in Gastown at the Pint. Uh, where, when did this start, this event? Uh, well, like I said, in, I believe in, in Vancouver it started about 2003, 2004, um, but originally started in San Francisco in the mid-90s, and that was loosely based off of another event that happened in Copenhagen in the mid-70s. And so, so the original event, the original event or events, this all comes from Copenhagen. Uh, it does, um, but the official SantaCon, as we'll call it, uh, began in San Francisco in the nineties. Um, now you've been there. You said the thing, but since two thousand and six, and participating, um, what kind of like you must meet new people every year? Then we do. We have a wide age demographic. Everybody's welcome. Um, we have people right from little children all the way into their 70s and 80s. 
Um, and we we see a lot of these people year after year as well. <laughs> I'm going to assume the kids are there for the the art gallery portion, and then after that they yeah. they head home. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. We're not we're not bringing them to the bars with us. <laughs> uh, do you have inebriated Santas? I'm going to assume if they're enjoying their time uh, safely. There, yes, there is definitely will be inebriated Santas. Um, I luckily I can say in Vancouver we've been fairly um, well behaved, um, unlike some of the events that happened down south. Um, I think in the in the 16 years I've been involved, I've only seen one arrest, so that's been pretty good for us. Um, and yes, uh, we we have a rule too: we don't leave a Santa behind. So we see uh, a Santa in distress, we make sure they get home safely. Now, I think it's referred as a Vancouver Festive Fund Rager, is what you, what it's called. Now, how many people actually participate? Um, it, it could be anywhere from. It varies every year. Uh, Low, small years, about 150 people. We've had one year, I think we had close to 600. Um, now, now Vancouver's Santa Con, we like to keep it, this is fairly small compared to other cities. I believe New York can get up to 30,000 people. Oh, wow. That is, that is that is huge. Now, so if people wanted to participate um, in this, are there any sort of uh, rules uh, that people have to follow? We do have four rules. Um, we don't mess with children. We don't mess with cops. We don't mess with security or bar patrons, and we don't mess with other Santas. Ah, that's 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 about right. And I'm just curious, what kind of things do you talk about when you meet strangers uh, uh, that are also dressed as Santa as you're doing these pub crawls? What kind of things do you talk about? Uh, we talk about um, what we're doing for Christmas, obviously. Uh, we talk about uh, what Christmas means to them. Um, we also like to bring up the, how absurd Christmas is in regards to uh, capitalism, mm-hmm. and uh, we we, uh, we definitely have a, a strong presence within the arts community, and they have a strong presence at Danicon. People bring their their art that they've been working on all year, and uh, they share that with us and share it with the community, which is excellent. Wow, that is uh, <laughs> is great. So, if if uh, one wanted to participate in the twenty twenty two SantaCon. When uh, is it occurring? It is occurring on December 17th of this year at about uh, 12.30. But, uh, we can be found on Instagram and we can be found on Facebook under uh, SantaCon Vancouver. Okay. We do have a, uh, an itinerary posted online at the uh, Facebook page. Okay. Um, and we also have a, uh, we're, donating, we're trying to raise funds for uh, a local charity this year as well on there. Well, that is excellent. Uh, I wish you all the best. Uh, I hope everybody has a great time and everybody stays safe and uh, nothing worse than Santa waking up with a hangover. So uh, let's exactly. hope uh, it's, it's, all, it's all fun, as it all usually is. So thank you so much. Uh, I think this is fabulous, and best of luck to you. Excellent. Thanks a lot, Jazz. Take care. for listening to the Jazz Joe Hall Show podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to the show on Apple or Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can always listen to the Jazz Joe Hall Show live Monday to Friday from 3 to 6 p.m. on 980 CKNW and connect with me on Twitter at Jazz Joe Hall BC. Talk to you next time. Oh my god, the ship is sinking! I can't get out! There's water everywhere! We're going down!
I've got a lock on your location. Stay with me. Hello? Are you there? Help is on the way. Angela Bassett and Peter Krause return in an all-new season of 911 on a new night. Thursday, March 14th on Global. Stream on Stack TV.